Record unemployment, ANC can't pay salaries, and international relations on this week's special episode of the Free Marketeers. Hello everyone, hope you're doing well. Chris here with another episode of The Free Marketeers and I'm joined by a very special guest who after today will be with us every week because she's going to enjoy the episode so much and just come back all the time. We have Mukundi, she's an, an intern here with The Free Market Foundation joining us today in the office. Mukundi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, doing very well, thanks. As I mentioned, we've got unemployment to talk about and of course the ANC not being able to pay staff salaries but you know nhi will be successful ewc will be successful before we get into that just tell us a bit about you your background at the moment you're studying um so you're trying to to forge a path for yourself as it were um how did you come across the fmf and and tell us a bit about about you um so i'm currently a law student at the university of Witts, um and i came across the fms because i fmf because i was doing research last year and I was just finding, looking at random opinion pieces, and then I found the FMF, and then I just applied and, and was like, let's see where this goes, because I think it, what you guys do is really interesting, it's really um, impactful, and it has a lot of reach, so I just applied just to see if I could also contribute, and then here I am, an intern. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, hopefully we, the more we influence you, hopefully we can keep you around for many, many years to come. Uh, for those of you who are interested, you can find some of Mukundi's articles and letters on our website, as always, www.freemarketfoundation.com. To get into the news then and the major talking points from this week, uh, South Africa, we're very good at rugby and other sports, and now we can also claim to be the best at unemployment. So according to Bloomberg, uh, South Africa's unemployment rate is now the highest among the countries that Bloomberg monitors. The jobless rate rose to 34.4% in the second quarter of this year, up from 32.6%. Um, the median of three economists' estimates in a Bloomberg survey was 33.2%. If you include the expanded definition of unemployment, which is people who are available for work but not looking for a job, that rose to 44.4% from 43.2% in the first quarter. Uh, we can break this down a bit, but just your, Mukundi, your sort of general impressions. This is something that you that you expected. Of course, we keep having more lockdowns, the pandemic is still going on. So that's a fact uh, we have government policies, which I don't think favor job creation in general. But do you think this trend is just going to continue where we at some point reach, I don't know, 70% unemployment, that kind of thing? Um, I do expect this to continue as it is. Uh, I think that considering the pandemic and how things have been handled, um, the lockdowns, the shutdowns, um, there's not really been much to allow businesses to really operate and allowing, especially because small businesses are the largest um, employers of, right. of people in South Africa, there hasn't been much room and much support for them. And that this is honestly going to continue to rise, it's expected. And moving forward, even with other policies that the government is considering, um, it's not really beneficial to solving this issue. I guess you could point to um, the current NHI, NHI bill as it stands. A lot of doctors, surprisingly, even in a pandemic, are not employed, don't have really much much job security um, and are yet needed, but they don't have security in, in, in the, like the health sector and the health um, 
and and being able to like contribute to the health sector as a whole. So I honestly expect this to rise um, within a matter of years. Maybe next year it might be up to fifty percent. Who knows? And probably the, to me, the most concerning part of the unemployment stats is for young people, the youth unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. So according to Status A, nearly two thirds of those aged 15 to 24 are unemployed. So it's almost on, um, it's, it's above now 67% for that age group. And then 42,9% of those aged 25 to 34 were unemployed. About 3,4 million people out of 10,2 million aged 15 to 24 are not in employment education or training. I mean, it's, we get, we, we are now seeing more arguments and momentum for something like a basic income grant. Um, mm-hmm. And I think for many, many people across the ideological spectrum, we don't want to see our fellow, fellow man suffering as it were. We want to help and provide some kind of assistance. It's a very empathetic, I think, mm-hmm. reaction, but surely just going down the route of grants and continued assistance while it can help people who are very destitute. I don't think that should be the main policy focus. Surely you need like growth in and of itself. You need economic activity to, to get there. What do you think? Do you think it's an either or? Do you think you can have both? I honestly believe that just take away the grant in order for you to allow people to grow, to have opportunities, to have access to opportunities, you have to change the system. So even if we began to introduce these grants, you have to look at the overall system. Is there support for young people to enter the job market? Is there support and train, like, is there support for these people to be able to access the necessary tools to lift themselves out of poverty and out of these horrible situations? Because I mean, as young people, when you graduate from high school and you go to varsity, your dream is, oh, I have job security, all is fine, all is fine. Um, but if there is no sub- overall system that actually is created to benefit businesses, to benefit people entering the market, um, this grant is not really going to do much of a difference. It's not really going to solve any of the great systemic issues. Right. Yeah, and I suppose as well as a more of a meta point, we keep on thinking we can redistribute people into prosperity. But at some point, that that pie is going to shrink. I mean, I think there are ever fewer taxpayers in the country. People are immigrating mm-hmm. across racial lines and income lines. People are wanting to leave the country for different reasons. Um, I have a lot of admiration for people who try to stay, obviously, and try and build. But also, mm-hmm. one can understand why people, why they have their reasons for leaving. I just, I, I feel like we need to incentivize people to stay as much as possible. And part of mm-hmm. that is just getting out of their way. <laughs> Mm. It's also like how um, I mentioned earlier on how since the early 2000s, a lot of doctors have been leaving Africa. Um, And it's one of the greatest benefits, I guess, for the West Mm. is that they have access to trained. They like they've saved thousands of dollars training these doctors and they're just coming over to them. So looking at that also, like the system over the overall system doesn't really support people um, trying to enter the job market, doesn't really support that, doesn't really allow people to just be and exist within the system um and it's shocking because we in a pandemic and we're still losing doctors yeah i I feel like just like a policy point we don't have to go down this rabbit hole as it were but Mm. i mean a lot of people's (laughs) focus is on healthcare, obviously with nhi expropriation without compensation maybe prescribed assets the nationalization of the reserve bank the basic income grant and i feel like maybe sometimes we lose sight of education and how bad this education system is in South Africa. So, I mean, mm. to put you on the spot, as it were, and you can sort of, uh, well, you can you can bat it off for a bit if you wanted to, but how do we implement the necessary kind of reforms in education? I even think now 
we should there should be a discussion about this focus of people have to go to university have to like uh, get an honors degree a master's degree a phd like this this life path where what about vocational training what about uh, that sort of skill set i mean you're always going to need and people are going to be passionate about and feel stimulated by going into vocational training stuff like i don't know engineering plumbing electricians that sort of stuff what do you I mean, I know that's a big sort of point and, oh, how do you solve South Africa's education crisis? But what do you think of, of that discussion? Mm, I think that discussion is really important in the sense that I think that when we, whenever we look to like how success looks, how um, prosperity looks, it's very definitely defined by just higher education, um, tertiary education, instead of actually of looking at what our society actually needs. Right. And instead of actually looking to what could actually benefit us as a greater whole and as a great society. And I think that because higher education in terms of tertiary education is the only way out, it sort of limits our ability to think beyond how can we actually help young people as a whole. And I think that this is what the Fees Must Fall movement also sometimes misses, mm -hmm. is that how can we actually contribute to our society as a whole? How can we contribute um, much more than just getting like a basic four-year degree as somebody who's doing a four-year degree? <laughs> um, but thinking beyond that and thinking what skills, how can we basically encourage people to want to build our country? And I think that the ability, the fact that we don't really have vocational, we have vocational schools, but some of them aren't even well um, maintained. Um, the curriculum's also not well maintained. It's very, it's very few and far between. Um, I think that that should also be a major focus in terms of ensuring that our young people have access to the job market, young people have access to education and these essential skills for South Africa. And the, the necessary point with having the, the, the required opportunities is you need, you need businesses in the first place, you yeah. need investment, capital investment. And I know the president has often had these summits where he's promised mm -hmm. investment, but to me, his wishes don't gel with government policies, which, mm. which discourage investment, I would say. Mm. It's, it's all well and good telling young people, get your degree, go to your vocational school. When you come out, there will be opportunities. If they're, if the businesses of all sizes, it's not just corporates, but anything, and in the informal sector don't exist in the first place to create those opportunities, it's almost like a dead end. You're promising people things that are never going to be delivered. That's true. That's true. And it's sort of like... Um, it end up it ends up wasting I wouldn't I, I guess it wastes the time with people because a lot of people are going into these spaces thinking that oh my gosh I'm going to be supported oh my goodness I have access to this wonderful skill and this tool but if you can't use it anyway what does that mean yeah. and that's where like the poverty trap also begins to emerge and not to I mean we saw in July the spate of violence and looting mm -hmm. and not to to quote unquote find reasons to justify it, but you can almost understand where for years people are promised things. They're promised jobs, houses, whatever, their wildest wishes. They're told just keep voting for this government and you'll get it. And then when they reach a frustration point, we should try and understand why that happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know there is an argument that some of it was the, the result of instigators on behalf of the previous president. But I think there's an element and a, a lot of bubbling frustration in South Africa and people are promised things. But the policy environment isn't isn't right for that. Um, as bad as like the pandemic has been, I think that it's also been a point where a lot of the issues that have already existed have just become increasingly heightened. And that the week of riots is not an incident in isolation. Right. It's basically just been people's frustrations, the system essentially the system has been cracking this whole this whole year, 2020, 2021, and that people have just it's just a physical manifestation of that frustration. 
And I think that um, the only way that we can really solve it is by changing the system, reforming the system. Yeah. Moving on to our next uh, point from the unemployment, we can always come back to that if we want to elucidate any more points. But just our major other topic of discussion uh, for today is that the African National Congress staff uh, were set to down tools from yesterday because of unpaid salaries. So of course, we're recording on 27 August, which is a Friday. Um, so ANC employees across the country say they will down tools. They are demanding their outstanding wages and the party has been battling to reimburse its workers under time. So my question is, and maybe this is an unfair question because it's two separate <laughs> things, but we, on the one hand, we have the party in government, the majority, who say we want to implement stuff like the national health insurance appropriation without compensation, and these things will work. We will deliver improved health care for all. We will give everyone land. On the one hand, on the other hand, they can't pay their staff their salaries. Is that a fair question? And also just give us your thoughts on the fact that they can't pay salaries. Um, I think that, I guess it would be two separate questions. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that they, the fact that they can't pay their salaries also begins to show that, I guess the envisioned reality or the hopes and dreams of what could be is also failing. Like it's a manifestation of that, the ANC being unable to fulfill like pay salaries is already like a physical manifestation of that. And I think that the proposal to introduce um, EWC and the, the national health insurance it's just putting a Band-Aid yeah. on these issues. It's not really addressing the deeper things. So even if we were to like introduce the NHI, uh, we have to think back and look. We need doctors to um, power that. Yeah. Isn't isn't the Charlotte my, my, the, yeah, hospital not open? Uh, one, one, I'm speaking under correction and the listeners can correct both of us, but I think one or two of the divisions of the hospital are open again. Oh, but even open. there, they're... They're diverting people to go to other hospitals. You see. And this is supposed to be one of Joburg's biggest hospitals. Mm, and it's supposed to like service. Like how many people live in Joburg? Mm -hmm. Like over like five million people. Yeah. So it does just doesn't make sense. So I feel that these are a wonderful idea. They are ideas, wonderful right. ideas. Having that having good health care is like a wonderful idea. Everyone deserves that. But at the same time, um, we don't even have the manpower to to actually like run these things. We don't have like we have a lot more broader issues. Firstly, to have those doctors need edu education and feedback into our initial argument. And, we, and now we have to like power this. We need to ensure that there's good health, there's good tools to use there, like good good products, like tools, um, surgicals, whatever. Um, it's just it doesn't speak to the reality of the situation. And I think that we really need to come back to earth and really look at where we are. And begin to understand what can we solve now? What can we? What what needs direct attention right now? I do feel bad for, of course, employees and workers of the ANC. Of course, I mean they they said management have made numerous verbal and written undertakings to address some of their demands. By the mm. end of August, they called on the party's political leaders to urgently intervene. I believe President Ramaphosa is in Germany this week, so he's uh, he's not out uh, asking for more money to invest in South Africa. Um, I mean, I don't know if he's going to wade into this debate, um, but it's it's a sad indictment of the party, and you wonder, I mean, yeah, you wonder when the reality is really going to make them change their minds about a lot of their plans. You know, as you say, actually being realistic about one's ideals and the the bullet trains and the smart cities that mm -hmm. you want to build, but how do you get there and the work that's needed? And it's not shortcuts. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you actually want improved healthcare for all. You need to implement the reforms that reform both the public and private health sectors. Mm. If you want people to have property, you 
you give title deeds, you do that kind of thing. You don't just take these shortcuts and say, oh, let's just amend the constitution. It's going to fix everything. That Down that path, I think, leads even more of this kind of problem. And I guess like a separate aspect um, that we could really pinpoint to like really drive this home is like um, the fourth industrial revolution. It is wonderful. It's wonderful trying to get people um, into like an industrialized world where everything's running efficiently. But I think that within the African context, more so like within South Africa, there's this glamorization that we're going to have these amazing fast trains. You're going to have wonderful like Wi-Fi all around. But we need to also look quite honestly those are wonderful aspirations but we also need to look at our reality and say okay um can we achieve this what do we need now to actually like provide the basic needs for what people need now just driving that home first and then we can move towards these things right. at an aspirational like at a, that's sort of that pace mm -hmm. i agree moving on to another topic and we can get onto the international i think aspects as well because there's always a lot happening in the world but i just wanted to mention for those of you uh, this is sort of a public service announcement as well. <laughs> if you're if you've been struggling to to renew your driver's license um minister fikile mbalula has extended the grace period until the end of march 2022 so for those of you who are struggling to renew your licenses especially in Gauteng, uh, there's been a lot of issues with the booking system and obviously licensing centers are in, yeah. in, uh, in serious trouble but now for those of you who are stressing you should still stress because it's not <laughs> that they're going to fix everything before next year march but at least now the grace period has been extended apparently Gauteng has the highest number of experienced licenses in the country so good job all of you who are listening in Gauteng so just a, a little announcement on that i don't know if you, if, you, if you have any ideas on how we can solve the licensing issue. <laughs> no, that's heavy. Okay. Uh, but wasn't this like, wasn't it extended like last year yes. June? So it's just keeps on yeah. being extended. Because the, there was a lot of, I think, angst now because it's 27 August and this deadline was 31 August. So people were, uh, and people can't get booking slots. They can't even like go in the first place. Yeah. So now they've extended it again until next year. Maybe, maybe we should take a bet on whether, what will be, what will we have first? Will we have, an actual deadline the end of March next year, or will the local government elections take place before? <laughs> that, that's also like stressful. Like, will we even have, because it hasn't been publicized, no, no, no ad, nothing. It's just like sort of in limbo. Yeah. What do you think about that? Like, do you think that, what, what would be like a hypothetical situation of like the elections are occurring? What would that mean for South Africa long term? I think it's a very dangerous precedent. And yeah. I know that the justification for the IEC, for example, or people in government will be the pandemic and how difficult it is. But I mean, on the other hand, you can say people are queuing in lines, people are going to shops. The pandemic is still, COVID is going to be with us probably forever. Mm -hmm. But democracy, as it were, needs to happen, it needs to take place. So I think it sets a dangerous precedent. It will then set the precedent that elections can be postponed for other reasons in the future. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of pressure on government at the moment, especially after the last two years. I mean, never mind the is the economic issues before COVID and during COVID, but we even saw wide-scale PPE looting yeah. during the pandemic. So I think there is a bit of momentum against government now, as it were. Maybe that's me being too hopeful and hoping that people will vote <laughs> differently. But I just think it's a dangerous precedent and that the local elections should still take place. They should take place in October. They should happen this year, I'm hoping. I don't think we should delay them. What do you think? 
I think adding on to the dangerous precedent, um, just looking at how this pandemic has been handled, um, there's no been um, there's no there's not been good governance. Right. Um, there hasn't been there haven't been any like checks and balances. Whenever we people have been uh, seeking out like accountability, it's always mm-hmm. they have to pursue the court. They have to go through the courts instead of actual government being open and honest. Imagine. <laughs> yeah, you wrote an article on the national coronavirus command council. Yeah, and how? Yeah. So there hasn't been much um, openness. There hasn't been much um, transparency. And I feel that, not to be nihilistic or anything, but there is a potential that, there is a possibility that um, we might not have elections or it might be postponed, um, just as how like a lot of these shutdowns have been justified despite there not being any like accountability, nobody really answering in parliament um, to how this pandemic has been governed, who's deciding, who's making these decisions. Um, and nothing has, nothing like that has been released. So I... To be quite, I'm a, like I'm a contrarian, mm. but I do believe that this election might be pushed, but postponed. Wow. I do believe, given how the pandemic has been handled, given how there hasn't been much transparency, we need good governance. I it is highly likely. Okay, so we won't have you back on the podcast because you're just going <laughs> to give us the bad. <laughs> I'm being realistic. The, the kind of work that we do, we have to be in touch with everything going on, and we have to make sort of calls, and you know formulate our thoughts in terms of how sort of what's the worst case scenario as it were. Uh, yeah. but I guess I'm just I'm just reading the room. No, no, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, reading the tea leaves. Yes. <laughs> Moving on to our final uh, topic of conversation, we thought we'd touch on some some international matters. Um, obviously the, the last two weeks the news has been dominated by the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. Yeah. And the mess that that has been. I mean from a, a libertarian point of view one doesn't want non-ending war uh, occupation to go on forever. So I think a withdrawal is always coming. We're not military experts. I'm not going to try and say here, oh, like they should have done this step or that step or whatever. But I think we can all say, regardless of our ideological sort of inclination, it's been a mess. Yeah, they botched it. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, very badly. So uh, yesterday, I believe there was an explosion at Kabul airport. Um, And despite the US having the, that's the only area that they can have control over. And you, you hear some US representatives for example saying publicly to the to the taliban you know the international community will be watching you with 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 interest and pressure and whatever and i just think the taliban's like okay yeah so cool story (laughs) um so that that was the one international point so if you want to you can obviously talk to that and anything else internationally that you want to you want to tell the listeners about i think that the whole um the afghan conflict um it has been like it has been widely known, like since 2017. Earlier than that, that they would not be able to pull out successfully with keeping um, and keeping a democratic government in place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the promises by the Taliban to be progressive, um, to protect the rights of women, to ensure that everything is done um, by the book, is is quite unrealistic. Despite the, the, considering the fact that they took Afghan Afghanistan like by by a coup, right. like having to trust somebody and telling them and letting them tell you that yeah sure thing we'll make sure that there's rule of law despite they being a coup, <laughs> that doesn't really like provide much confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that hmm, I, I I guess like more of like an unpopular opinion that mm-hmm. has emerged is whether like this is a sort of a turning point for the U.S. and the right. U.S. politics and how they engage with the rest of the world. Um, what position can they take and what position should they take? And one thing that comes that comes up is sort of um, using China as a foil to the USA and how China handles their dealings internationally and how they um, work with governments. Okay. 
um, could this also indicate uh, the USA having to change and pivot the international strategy? Um, could they take on more of a, and to, in order to stay in line with the needs of the world and also how the world is evolving, um, would they have to take on a standpoint of just being like, we res respect sovereignty and we're just here to push our own agenda, mm -hmm. similar to China? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I think China, I think they're really, they're moving in Afghanistan. Mm, um, they are. And it's very close to China, obviously. So mm. they want to make sure that what the, the regions that surround them are relatively stable. Mm. I, you know, for all the, the foils that the US has, and I think we should acknowledge them, we should also, I think there's an element to be said of the last 100 years ish, maybe a little bit less, of relative, relative. I mean, the, the pockets of violence and stuff, but compared to the rest of human history, mm. the relative level of peace and stability that there has been. Now, does that mean that the U.S. should forever be the world's policeman? You would hope not, and you would hope that people all around the world start, you know, looking, quote-unquote, after their own backyards, as, as it were. My, my main concern, and I think a point of interest that comes out from this specific example is you know, do liberal institutions work around the world? And should, for example, a country like the US, the UK, Germany, France, should they try and do this whole nation building, exporting democracy thing? Mm. Or should you, you know, wh where do you draw the line? Do you mm. want to put international sanctions on countries to reform like North Korea? It whatever? doesn't work. Yes. Yeah. Does it actually work? Or does it just encourage more autocratic behavior and totalitarian behavior? In the long run, it's very difficult to say, and I'm sure there's strong arguments and points on either side. But I, you know, one just wishes that things don't don't destabilize and descend as they might have been a hundred years ago. I get that's true, but I'm also just curious. Like even within like the period of like the last hundred years, they've always there's always been conflict. There's mm -hmm. been proxies right. um, that been that have been used to facilitate like that that frustration into like Vietnam, um, Korea, mm -hmm. um, Afghanistan is just like one of the newest examples to just a recent one, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I what I want to ask is more so what policy? I mean, not policy experts here, but what policy right. do you think that the U.S. could take now? or should take now, given the failure of Afghanistan? What, how should they approach the rest of the world? Um, and also balancing the, something such as responsibility to protect that like was adopted in 2005. How do you balance that? At the very least, I think in terms of, in terms of policy and we, you know, we can comment on stuff that, have, that affects liberty in a policy sense. So at the very least, they should now repeal the Patriot Act because that was introduced <laughs> yeah. for the Afghanistan war. So now should you still, infringe on Americans and people around the world, civil mm, liberties mm. and invade their privacy. I think that's one thing, one policy point that should be uh, you know, taken. It's not going to be because as we've seen throughout history, governments virtually never let go of the power that they accrue in emergencies and through war. Yeah. They always keep on to that power and they want to build more of it. From, a, from an international relations point of view, I hope that the US stands by its allies because i think there is something to be said for allyship and showing your allies that you've got their back i think about a country like taiwan which is going to be coming under more pressure with the whole semiconductor after war. after hong kong was just like yes. essentially seized right. yeah. um and even you can say with hong kong did the us do enough that they sort of point that they say oh well you know all hong kongers who want to come to the us come in i know the uk allowed and canada some yeah. people in but you know, I, I'm worried about the sort of ally allyship point. And in general, I'm worried about the rise of populism around the world mm -hmm. and sort of strong men. I think there's a 
there's a hunger for that in many populations around the world, not just in certain countries. And I'm worried about how that's going to rise. No, like you, sorry, you just raised like a really interesting point about Hong Kong um, and how like America, nobody really did much. It was just like Hong Kong's me taken over. Oops. Yeah, oh, well. Good yeah, good luck. Yeah. So how like how could we have handled that better? How yeah. could we have handled that situation better? Because people from Hong Kong are literally crying out saying, please, mm. like they're about to take over our system of governance. Like, yeah, it, you need to, and this is more of a psychological point, maybe, but you need red lines and you need to stick to those red lines then mm. <laughs> you mm. can't just say don't do this and then when the country does it you're like ah let's move the red line again mm. No, mm. the goalpost uh, keeps former, moving there we go former u.s president barack obama had his line in the sand with syria but the line in the sand kept on moving and mm. you're like is it really a line or is it just a mm. sort of pragmatic point as it were this isn't to say that you can't have different forms of power in negotiation you can have hard power soft power you can have negotiation behind the scenes you can have force of military shows of military force. So the U.S. could roll out aircraft carriers now in the Gulf and other places in the Middle East. Is that going to achieve the same ends that they ultimately want? And you also, I mean, we shouldn't hold up any country, I think, as like the moral paragon of yeah, the world because the moral police. that like, again, gives justification for all sorts of infractions because they can say, oh, well, we're just protecting people kind of thing. Mm. What, what is that? Uh, there's, there's always a meme been going around that's like, what you will follow our ways by force or something like that. You know, you will adopt democracy by, by force. force. Yeah. Mm. Does it actually then count as the, does it hold if people don't like implement those systems and institutions themselves? And also like, um, I guess, should you force it? Like if it's, if it's an area and a system and like they own, they own, have their own systems that work in that area. Is it just like to also like impose your way of life? Is, is it equitable? Is it actually meaningful? Does it actually speak to the reality and the philosophies behind libertarianism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a, you get a school of thought in libertarianism, which says anywhere where liberty is infringed, it needs, you need to fight against the oppressors. So who does that burden then fall onto? Exactly. Ultimately, someone needs to then pick up their rifle and go and fight it. Now, does it fall on the American citizen who's 18 years old, just out of college kind of thing, who has to go overseas and do it? I, 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 I like that many people tend towards liberty, but I don't know if there's a, yeah, this is me, is me as an <laughs> speaking, mm. but I don't know if there's a moral obligation on you to go and do X and sacrifice your life in that way. And it's not... You know, it's not an easy, is it a utilitarian point? Do you say if we sacrifice 10 lives, 10 American lives, we save 100,000 Afghanistan lives? I guess I think another thing sort of like detracting from that is is who gets to save those lives. So um, the USA, they were sort of because they have like a hegemonic power, hegemonic force, they get to do that. But right. could a country such as, um, I don't know, a random country, maybe Algeria decide, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to go send troops would they be would they would they experience the same sort of the ability to just go in and do whatever you want to do mm -hmm. in the name of democracy it's yeah. also those things also happen within the world the world system of who gets to decide who gets to enforce um liberty who gets to enforce um what is right, right. and who decides who is right you yeah. see one of those things also emerged the us was viewed as like wow well done an upstanding state right. starting this war mm -hmm. but now look at it 20 years mm -hmm. later yeah, Afghanistan. Maybe, maybe we're missing the crucial point, which is that if you, if anyone goes into Afghanistan, they all mess up. <laughs> you mentioned earlier it was the the Brits, uh, or first the Soviets. Yeah, it was Britain in the Britain. 18, 1834 something. Okay, then the Soviets. Yeah, in the seventies. I mean, the Soviet Union collapsed 
partly because of like <laughs> doing that invasion and the financial costs. Yeah. And is now is this the steady decline of the US empire? And also like the um, Gorbachev was trying to sort of um was trying to reform the system, trying to reform right. the USSR, thinking, oh, let's just try and like um model our state after something that would be beneficial and then thereafter. <laughs> you know <Yeah>. what happens. <laughs> uh, uh, we can obviously go on for hours about different philosophies, ideologies and like international relations, but I think that's a good note on which to end. Um, we've covered quite a bit this week from local to international. Uh, we have to thank you for coming on this week, Mukundi. I greatly enjoyed getting to talk to you, so thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really fun. Nice banter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's been it's been good. Uh, to the to the listeners, thank you as always for joining us for yet another episode. We greatly appreciate all of the support that you give that you give us. If you enjoyed this episode, please like the video. Please also subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't yet. And if you're listening on any other podcast platform in the audio format, obviously, please subscribe to our our feed. So that you get all of our new episodes as they as they come out. Uh, next week, I should have two episodes coming: one with Mark Oppenheimer um, on the Kualani Judgment, and then another episode with Hendrew Krier of Solidarity, the trade union, about their recent NHI research, uh, which included stats like how many doctors and nurses are saying they will leave the country if the NHI is implemented. So make sure you subscribe to our channel so you see those all those episodes when they come out. Until next time, have a good weekend. Take care out there. Stay safe. And we'll talk to you all again very soon. Bye-bye.